Grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Father, we come to you humbly. We come to you in desperation because we need to hear from you today. We've come here by faith. and We've come expectantly, Lord, trusting that you are good, that you are faithful, and that you will meet with us here through your word. We thank you, God, that you've exalted your word above even your own name. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts that we would behold marvelous, wonderful, blessed things from your word today. Your word is truth. It is life. It is light. And we, we come to you, God, hungry and needy for you, Father. We praise you. I pray that you would please speak through me today, God. Please use me for your glory and for the exaltation of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so in the text that we are in today, this is just a classic text. It's a very special text of Scripture. And what we see is the birth of the church, the beginning of the church of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see the first account of Christian baptism as it takes place after the birth of the church happens. This is a time when the Holy Spirit will fall upon the Christians here. This is a, a revolutionary. This is the first time in history that this happens as such, as Christ has gone back to be with the Father, and He said that when He went, He would send the Helper, the Holy Spirit, who would come, and that's exactly what we have recorded for us in this text that we're going to be looking at today. And when the Holy Spirit falls upon the Christians there, what we're going to see is Peter, the apostle, preached this glorious sermon. This, this gospel message, this exaltation of Jesus Christ. And then we're going to see the people respond by the grace of God to this message, and we're going to see them be baptized by the thousands. And so then it goes into how the early Christians lived. What, what was it like in the church there in the beginning? And so I've titled this message, Baptized into the Basics. Baptized into the Basics, because that's, that's really what it is. It's going back to the beginning. Going back and seeing how the church was, what was the church like when it started, and, and uh, these people, by the power of the Holy Spirit, coming to Christ and being baptized and being changed, and how did they live in those early days? And I, you know, if you, if you don't know the Lord Jesus, if you haven't given your life to Him, I think this will be a great message for you. It'll be a great thing for you to see and understand, because we have so many ideas about what Christianity is and is not, and it's important to know what the Bible actually says, and I think this is a great text for you. And if you're new to Christ, if you're new in the faith, and you're learning about these things, you're building the foundation, this is a foundational text. And if you've been walking with the Lord for some time now, you're seasoned in your faith, sometimes I think it's good to go back to the beginning, amen? It's good to go back to the basics. And that's the idea. And as, again, I'm using this word baptized. Oftentimes we use it in common language to, to, to mean immersed into, you know, to go all the way under, to go all the way in. And, and we hear people use that when we talk about adversities, baptized by fire, you know, and, and we use that word in so many different ways. And that's kind of the idea of being, being fully immersed into the Christian life, into the basics of of Christianity, and it, it starts with uh, a proper and correct understanding of what the gospel is, and that's what we're going to see in our text today, and then what that means when you've made that commitment, when you have 
committed to Christ and then been baptized in His name? What, what does life then look like? And so that's, that's where we're going today. So I have two main points. And then I have several sub-points, and they all have P's in them. I worked really hard to, to be able to do that. And so that is not an easy thing for me to do, but I somehow pulled it off. So uh, with that, the first thing that we see in our text is the proclamation of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is it, folks. The gospel is it. That is, that is the power of God unto salvation. And so we're going to see several different aspects about the glorious gospel that Peter preaches under the power of the Holy Spirit. And the first thing that we notice is that it is about the person and work of Jesus Christ. The gospel is about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2, verse 22. That's where we'll be picking up in our text today. Now... We're going to be looking at two different portions from this chapter because this is one really massive sermon. And we're not going to cover the whole sermon, but so that we're not just totally lost, we're going to drop down into the beginning of Peter's sermon. And then we're going to kind of go back towards the end of the chapter and look at the conclusion and the response. So just so you kind of understand how we're handling this text today. So verse 22, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Peter says this, men of Israel... Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. So recall, they are in Jerusalem right now. They're at the Feast of Pentecost, and Jerusalem is swelling. There's a pilgrimage that happens a couple times a year, and it is bursting at the seams with visitors right now. And on this very significant day on the Jewish calendar, the Holy Spirit falls upon the church and these miraculous signs begin to happen. And the apostles are speaking in known languages, different languages that they couldn't have otherwise known. But other people from the surrounding areas who had traveled from a long way away are hearing the, the, the preaching of the word of God in their own language. And they're, they're like, what in the world is going on here? And so Peter stands up and he begins to preach to these people the gospel. And he says, this is all about Jesus Christ, the man, the Jesus of Nazareth, who was attested to you by God through signs and wonders. And so notice what he does. He points right to Jesus. He makes a beeline right to Jesus. And, and he's preaching for the first time under the power of the Holy Spirit of God and that's significant, folks, because that's what the Holy Spirit does. That is the ministry, one of the main ministries of the Holy Spirit is to point people to Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible says that He would do, and that's exactly what He does. A Spirit-filled church will be a Christ-centered church. And sometimes that, that, really, gets, that really gets thrown thrown out of whack, and people... Somehow they're all about the Holy Spirit. Rarely do you hear them talk about Jesus, and something's not right there. So Peter, by the power of the Spirit, went straight, made a beeline to Christ. You know, throughout the history of the church and, and in modern times, there have been such abuses of the Holy Spirit that it's mind-boggling. And I just, uh, I just finished a book, and it was talking about that very thing, the abuses of the Holy Spirit in the church. And I give, I, you know, I'll tell you, this is a radical example, but you know, we've all probably heard and seen abuses of the Holy Spirit in the church, but 
under the guise of various manifestations, if you will, of the Spirit. This one was brand new to me. And it, there were women that were um, basically simulating giving birth to a baby in the church service and, and all of the agony and everything that goes into that. And that was called birthing in the Spirit. And it's like, okay, that is the craziest thing I have ever heard in my life. And that stuff happens, folks. It's, it happens in, in churches. And that is dead wrong. It's crazy and it's blasphemous is what it is. And it, it, that does not point people to Jesus in any way. So we want to make sure that we are dead set on glorifying, exalting, pointing to Christ Jesus in our lives in our speech, in our preaching, in our worship. Amen? Amen? Because that's what the Spirit of God does. And note, that is where uh, Peter begins here. Jesus at the center of it all. You know, this, this ought to be a given, but somehow Christ is, is missing so often. Christ is missing so often. And in fact, nowadays, oftentimes, people denigrate Jesus. They, they bring him down. And a lot of the modern, modern theology that's going on out there, people have really sought to bring Jesus down and to elevate us, ourselves, up to, up to really his, his rightful place. In fact, I just saw something a, a, a week or so back of a guy that was supposedly a pastor claiming that Jesus was a racist, right? And so he, he points to that story of uh, the, the Syrophoenician woman you may be familiar with it, maybe not. And it is, a, it is a difficult text, I will admit, but it's not Jesus is a racist. And so this guy said that this woman who had been offended by Jesus because of his racism, she stood up against Jesus and she spoke truth to power and Jesus repented. He repented of his racism. And I'm like, you got to get, just get out of here with that blasphemy. That is sickening. And that's, that's the way people oftentimes you know, in the day and age that we live in, treat Jesus. And that, that is, it's just foul, okay? That's, that is, the Spirit of God is not in that at all. So the first thing Peter did in the proclamation of the gospel was to extol the glorious works of Jesus Christ, the power of Jesus Christ. See, that, that is our honor, folks, is in glorifying Christ, for the Father has exalted Him to the highest place. And we live to that end, to make much of Jesus, to make much of Jesus. That is where Peter began, and he spoke of the power of Jesus. See, Jesus had power over disease. He had the ability to, to heal the sick. Jesus had power over deformity. Those who were lame or crippled, he was able to, to bring them to full strength. Jesus had power over the elements, the wind and the waves of the sea. He was able to calm the, the raging sea. The laws of nature, Jesus had the ability to walk on water and to, to turn water into wine and to multiply bread and fish. Jesus had power over demonic forces. The demons knew who Jesus was and they were terrified of him. He had the ability to cast them out. Jesus had power over death itself. Death could not stop the Son of God. He could raise people from the grave, and He Himself rose from the grave. But not only that, Jesus had the power to love His enemies perfectly. Jesus had the power to love His enemies perfectly. Even His closest followers who would ultimately abandon and deny even knowing Him, He loved them to the very end. 
He endured the most intense of temptations and persecutions. He was able to withstand the pressures of the religious elite to conform to their hypocrisies. They tried so hard to make Jesus bow to their hypocrisy, but Jesus withstood. And Jesus demonstrated perfect obedience to the Father, even unto death. See, that's the power of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He had power. He had power. So that is where Peter begins. And that's where we have to begin. It's all about Jesus, folks. It's all about Jesus. Next, we note that it is according to the predetermined plan of God. All of this, it's according to God's predetermined plan. Look at verse 23. It says, Him, that is Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by the lawless hands by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. The gospel was not a backup plan. The gospel of Jesus Christ was not God's backup plan. This wasn't God improvising somehow. God had a plan A, things went horribly wrong, and so God had to come up with a backup plan. So what's the plan B? Jesus, the gospel. No. And Jesus was not an unfortunate victim. Jesus was not an unfortunate victim to circumstance. This was the reason that Jesus came, folks. Jesus said that for this very hour, for this very purpose, I have come. And what was that? It was to die for sin. To die for the sins of men and women. To die for us so that we could live. So that we could have His righteousness and he would take our punishment on himself. See, that is the good news. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's been God's plan from eternity past. This was all part of God's plan to get for himself a redeemed people who would love him and worship him and serve him in glory and honor Christ as the great redeemer, as the gracious one, as the merciful one, as the all-sufficient Savior. Amen? It's a glorious thing. It's a glorious thing. And this was God's plan. It says that it was according to God's determined purpose and foreknowledge. That word foreknowledge can be a little tricky. And usually, and, and we find this word a couple times in the New Testament, and people typically think that means God possessed some kind of knowledge beforehand. That's what it sounds like. But it's not that. It's not a noun. It's not something that God had. It's something that God exercises. And it, it's actually more specifically foreordination. It's something that God set into place, something that God ordained to happen. And so this was all part of God's determined purpose and foreknowledge. It doesn't simply mean that God knew it would happen. God set it into place. Yet, the interesting, uh, interesting thing here that it says is that though this was God's plan and God's purpose, it happened by the hands of sinful men. These wicked men, these sinful men, they crucified Christ. So there's this interesting balance or mystery here between God's sovereign plan and the responsibility, the accountability that belongs to those who engaged in those atrocities. It was by the hands of sinful men that Jesus was crucified. But you know what? Ultimately, it was for the sins of sinful men, sinful men and women that it happened. It was for the sins of sinful men and women that it happened. Our sins. My sins. You know, there's a, a song, How Deep the Father's Love. Have you heard that song? It's a classic song. 
And it says it like this, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. It was my sin on his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. His wounds have paid my ransom. See, that is the glory, that is the goodness of our God. God did that for us. God paid that price. God sent His one and only Son to die in our place, to bear the sin guilt of the world upon His shoulders. It was my sin that held Him there. It was my voice crying out amongst the mockers. And ultimately, it was my debt that was paid. My debt that was paid. And that's the grace of God. It's, it's God's riches at Christ's expense. That is grace. And that was all part of God's plan. It wasn't some reactionary thing. It was something that God determined that He would do out of love and out of His goodness and kindness. The next thing that we see is the power of God's vindication of Jesus Christ through the resurrection. God vindicated Jesus Christ through the resurrection. Verse 24. It says, Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. It was not possible. Christ could not be held by the pains of death. God raised up Jesus from the dead. Death could not hold him back. Once more, this demonstrates for us that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. You know, if Jesus was just a, a common man, he would not have come back from the grave. If Jesus himself had in any way had sin of his own, he would not have come back from the grave. He would have died a sinner's death, and that's where he would have remained, in the grave. If Jesus' sacrifice for sin was not truly acceptable to God there on the cross, he would not have come back from the grave. So his resurrection is essentially like God saying amen when Jesus said it is finished. Jesus said, it is finished. He went to the grave. God said, amen, and he rose. That's what the resurrection is. It validates every claim that Jesus ever made about himself. It validates the fact that indeed our sins were truly paid for there on the cross and washed away forever, and Jesus rose again in victory, declaring victory over sin, death, and the grave. That is God's vindication of his Son. And as such, we have hope, brothers and sisters. We have hope, for he was truly an acceptable sacrifice for his sin. And because he lives, we too shall live. We too shall live. And we find this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14. It says this, And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all the most pitiable. But you know what? Christ did rise. He did. He rose again from the grave. And because He lives, we too shall live. 
And we have that hope because God himself has vindicated his son there through the resurrection. The next thing that we see, the providence of God. The providence of God in the lordship of Christ. Verse 36. So now we're, we're moving ahead here. Jump to verse 36. So now this is kind of, Peter spent quite a bit of time going into Old Testament texts and demonstrating how Jesus was the Christ as foretold in the Old Testament. We're going to kind of bypass that for the sake of time. And now Jesus, or uh, Peter's just going to really drive this thing home. Verse 36, he says, <clears throat> Therefore, <clears throat> excuse me, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. I mean, this is boldness here. We know that Peter was a, a, a very frightened man not long before this. Remember, he ran. He ran. He denied even knowing Christ. Now he's standing here in this crowd saying, you crucified him. I mean, that is the boldness of the power of the Holy Spirit here. And he says that God has made this one Lord in Christ that you crucified. So that, that's God's power. That's the sovereignty of God. That's what we would call the providence of God. The Bible says that God has the ability to work everything together according to His ultimate will and purpose. It can't be stopped. Try as you may, God cannot be stopped. And He's able to take our failures. He's able to take our fears. He's able to take our doubt. And He's able to still work that together in such a way that He can advance His purpose and work in us for His own glory. That is one of the greatest hopes of the Christian, the promise to the Christian is that God can use us no matter what, even in our weakness and shortcomings. I take great comfort in that, don't you? Nothing's going to ever stop God, not even me. Praise God, because I don't want to stop God. I want God to use me and to use my life to advance His purposes, and sometimes I think I just really get in the way of that, you know? Sometimes I think I, I, get, in, I get in my own way. Can, can you relate? But not so with God. Nothing can stop God. They could not stop God. You know, the Bible in Genesis, you may know the story of Joseph and his brothers. There was a little bit of sibling rivalry going on here. Maybe that's a little bit of an understatement. And so they thought, we're going to get rid of this little snot-nosed punk. I can't stand this kid anymore. So they sold him into slavery and told the dad that he had been killed, basically. And you know the story. God raised him up to the second highest place in Egypt and and then when they found out who he was, that he, uh, that he was in this place of power, the brothers were terrified that now he was going to exact revenge on them. But what did he say? He said, what you meant for evil, what? God meant for good. God meant it for good. God used it for good. And that is exactly what we see here. See, they meant this for evil. They were trying to take Jesus out. They thought they were going to get rid of him. They were going to crucify him, humiliate him, punish him, make a point, send a message. But you know what the message that got sent was is that Christ is Lord and that death cannot hold him back. That God was this unstoppable force. No matter what they did, this gospel was an unstoppable force. And God was mighty to save. Nobody, nothing was going to stop that. To this very day, God is a saving God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And try as this world may, this culture that we live in, may it cannot stop. It cannot stop the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says this very thing. You know, they tried to take Jesus out. 
Yet in so doing, salvation was accomplished for the world. Philippians 2, it says, Therefore God has also highly exalted Him and given Him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. God raised Him up to the highest place. See, He was obedient to death, even the death of the cross. But God exalted Him and gave Him the name above every other name. So that's God's sovereignty. That's God's providence in the Gospel. So the next thing we'll see is the plea of desperation from the people. That's the next P. Taking note of all the P's here? <clears throat> the plea of desperation from the people. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? They were cut to the heart. See, this too is a new reality now in the Holy Spirit. Just as Peter was preaching Christ by the power of the Spirit, sinners are now responding to the gospel message by the Holy Spirit. When that conviction came upon them, they responded. They said, what must we do? How can we respond to this? See, this is the grace of God in real time. Nothing less can break the heart of a sinner. Nothing less than the grace of God and the Spirit of God could break this heart. And I know that's the truth. If it wasn't for the intervention of a loving and gracious God, I would still be dead in my sin. I know exactly where, where I would be. I know exactly where I would be. No question in my mind. Well, such was the grace of God by the Spirit of God that He struck my heart to the core and I responded to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And I called upon the name of Jesus for salvation. And that is nothing less than the grace of God in action in real time. See, these people have been confronted with their sin and the cross of Jesus Christ. And instead of rejecting it, they cried out, what shall we do? See, that's the appropriate response. That doesn't happen too often, you'll notice. Most people, they reject the gospel. They hate Jesus. And they, they are, you know, they respond with uh, anger most often. That is the result. Or just a complete and total indifference, right? That's even scarier than anger, quite frankly. If someone's really angry and lashing out, I feel like that's a good sign. God's doing something there. You know, that sounds weird, but you ought to be encouraged by that. It's the people that are totally cold and in, indifferent and just standoffish. That, to me, is more frightening than anything. But these folks, they responded. They cried out. And that is such a glorious thing when we see that happen. Amen? That's what we desire to see. <clears throat> I know I remember that response for myself and so many of you here. I've heard the stories, and it's a glorious thing. That is a sign of the Holy Spirit. And I, I believe that even in this room right now, and I'll talk more about this before the message is over, right now the Holy Spirit is, is speaking to hearts in this room. There are people that are here today for different reasons and very different places in life. But there are some here who don't know Jesus as Savior. And the Holy Spirit, even now as I am speaking forth the gospel truth, is drawing you and you know it. 
you know it. And this is the day that you can call upon Jesus. This is the day that you can be raised into new life in Christ, that you can be forgiven, and that God can become your heavenly Father, and we can become your brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, the next thing that we see here, it's the promise of God to those who believe. The promise of God to those who believe. Now, this is where we kind of get into the, the baptism portion of the text. Verse 38. Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. So they said, what shall we do? Peter said, I'm going to tell you exactly what you need to do. He answered their questions with clear-cut commands. And the first thing he said was repent. Repent. And that is simply a turning away. We must turn away from the old life and turn to God. It is, a, it is abandoning the old life, the old self, and leaving that behind and going wholly and fully to God. You know, in a lot of ways, it's like jumping out of an airplane, right? You're leaving that airplane behind, you're going to the ground, and you're depending on that, on that uh, parachute to keep you from hitting the ground <clears throat> with great impact, right? But it wouldn't make any sense to have that parachute strapped to your back and to have a rope tied around your waist and the other end tied to the plane, would it? What would happen, imagine, in your mind for just a moment what that would look like? See, that, that's kind of how we are. We repent, but not totally. We, we turn towards God. We have one hand reaching out to God, but we still have one hand reaching back to the world from which God saved us out of. See, that's kind of like Lot's wife. You may know the story in Genesis where Lot and his family, they were rescued out of Sodom and Gomorrah before God was going to destroy that place. You remember what happened? She looked back, and the Bible said what happened to her. Yeah, the idea is she looked back longingly. See, that, that was her home. That's where her heart was, and she wanted to be back there. And so God sought to rescue her out of that place, which that was where she wanted to be. And so often we can do that with repentance. You know, it's like the Israelites. They got out of Egypt. Stuff got a little difficult. All of a sudden, oh, man, it was so good back in Egypt. We do the same thing. We are so guilty of the same thing. God brings us out through grace and mercy, and then we start thinking, oh, it was so much better back then, right? So we cannot do that. We must turn away from the old life and turn to Christ in faith, a true and full repentance. And then he says, let every one of you be baptized. Let every one of you be baptized. This is a universal command for Christians. All Christians are supposed to be baptized. Right? And so we don't believe that baptism is necessary for salvation. I'll talk about that in a moment. But we do believe that baptism is a critical point of obedience to the Lord. All Christians are supposed to be baptized. And a lot of Christians don't get baptized because either they're afraid to get up in front of a crowd or... Sometimes they just want the perfect, like, okay, we're going we're gonna to go to this river out in this crazy, like, exotic place. We're going to have all these people here, and it, they build it up into this huge event, and it never happens. 
On and on and on, there's all kinds of reasons why people don't get baptized, but that cannot be. As a Christian, you are in disobedience. I say that graciously, but I say that truthfully to you. Christians are to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And so that's what Peter specifically says, be baptized in that name. So what does that mean? Well, first off, there's a distinction to be made here. This is not the same thing as the baptism of John the Baptist. Uh, that, that was something slightly different. But his ministry was to call people to repentance and to prepare their hearts for the coming Messiah. And so this was kind of like, you know what? I want to get my life together. I want to prepare my heart for the coming of the Lord. And it spoke of, a, of some sort of a cleansing type ritual, but it wasn't the same thing. Jesus brought in a brand new thing here, a brand new thing. What this, what this reality, what this spoke of was something so much bigger and so much greater, and we'll talk about that. What it means is to identify with Christ. That's what being baptized in Jesus' name means. And first off, this is a public identification. This was a public thing. And so in that culture, in that day, for them to get up and to be baptized in Jesus' name could come at a great cost to them, at a great cost, because they were now publicly declaring their allegiance to Jesus Christ and their commitment to the church of Jesus Christ. I'll talk more about that here, here shortly, but that, that was the idea. It's a public identification with Christ, and it is a spiritual identification with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's, that's what this is a picture of. What it, that's a grave. And the person is going down into the water, and that represents death. You have died. The old man, the old woman has died with Christ, and you have been buried into the grave. But then you're risen up out of the grave, and you come out into the newness of life who, as one who has risen with Christ. And so we have been crucified with Christ, buried with Christ, and risen with Christ into the newness of life. And though that is a symbol, it's a picture, the reality could not be more true. Because if we are in Christ, if you are born again by the Spirit of God, then you are united with Christ. You are united to Him by the Spirit, which means that His death, His resurrection, His ascension has all been accredited to you. You can truly say, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. You can truly say, I have risen again into the newness of life. You can truly say you have ascended to the heavenly places where Christ is seated at the right hand of God because you are in Christ, because Christ is in you by the Holy Spirit. And that, in a very real way, is what the waters of baptism represent. It's, it's, it's a, a demonstration to the world that you are in Christ and that you have made that decision to follow Him and to identify with Him. And I would say, lastly, that this is in some ways like, a, like um, an initiation into the church of Jesus Christ. You know, I said that baptism isn't necessary for salvation, but I think we can go too far in the other direction and somehow act as though baptism is not important or not special. It is so incredibly important and serious and sacred and special. And in a lot of ways, this is the entry point into the church of Jesus Christ. When you have publicly identified yourself as a follower of Christ and been baptized in the presence of many brothers and sisters, you are now truly a part of that body. You are a part of that body. Now, you are a part of the body of Christ when you believe on the name of Jesus. 
when you're born of the Spirit. You are, you are part of the universal body of Christ. All believers who have gone before us, all believers around the world, all believers who will follow us, we are a part of that body, the universal body of Christ. But then we're also baptized into the local assembly, the local body of Christ, this family of believers right here and right now. And so baptism is such a very special and significant part even of that. Now I want to note here, I don't want to just pass this by, but it, it does say here that one ought to be baptized for the remission of sins. And that, that is to say forgiveness of sins. And so for that reason, people will, this is like the verse people will point to and say, see, this proves baptismal regeneration. That is the idea that you're saved when you're baptized. But I just want to make it clear that that is not, that cannot mean that because the scriptures are so clear that we are saved by grace through what? Through faith. Saved by grace through faith, not of works, not of religious rituals of any sort. None of that. It's through faith in Christ Jesus and the finished work of the cross and the resurrection. That is how we are saved. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is talking about how he hardly baptized any of the people there in Corinth when he was there. Just a couple of them. He said, God didn't send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. Now, if in Paul's mind baptism equated to salvation, he would not be boasting about that. He would have been like, man, I baptized as many people while I was in your midst as I possibly could, if that really did equate with salvation, right? And then, of course, the classic text is the thief who was on the cross with Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus said to him? He said, this day, he said, Lord, remember me when you get in your kingdom. What did Jesus say? This very day you're going to be with me in paradise. Okay? And so it was, it was that faith that he exercised there in Christ, even on the cross, in the last moments of his life, that gave him entrance into the kingdom. But nevertheless, baptism is so very important because it's so sacred and special, what it means, what it represents. So essentially what's happening here, I don't think that this is sequential. I don't think this is Peter speaking in a linear progression here when he mentions these things. Peter is essentially saying all of this is so very important to the believer. It's all so very necessary. You must repent. You must believe. You must be baptized. You must receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what he said. And so, truly, the, the way the Bible lays this out is you believe by faith in Jesus Christ and you receive the Holy Spirit. That happens simultaneously. That's not even a linear kind of a thing. And then as a result of that, you repent of your sins, you turn, and then you're baptized. And so that, that's really how it works out, if you will. And it, some of these things actually just overlap. They happen almost simultaneously. And I think that's the idea here. Peter's saying this is what is necessary. This is what is important. This is what is crucial for the one who has trusted Christ. Believe. Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Turn. Be baptized. And that's what we're watching happen today in real time, folks. It's such a glorious thing to realize. We're watching people who have been born again. They've called upon the name of Jesus unto salvation. They've repented of their sins. They've received the Holy Spirit, and they're being baptized today in the waters of baptism. Isn't that glorious? And we celebrate those kinds of things. All right, moving on. The next thing that we see is the persuasion to respond to the gospel and be saved. Verse 40, it says, And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. 
Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. So note here that with many other words, Peter continued to encourage and challenge. This is kind of a condensed, uh, a condensed version of Peter's sermon, but he continued to encourage and to exhort the people to turn. That's what it is. We plead with people. We plead with people to come to Christ. We don't just throw it out there and say, if you get it, you get it. You know, I'm going to go on about my life. It's not that way, folks. George Whitfield, this great preacher of old, said that if you will not weep for yourself, I will weep for you. You know, it's pleading, it's urging men and women to respond, to be saved, to be delivered from this present kingdom of darkness and to be brought into the kingdom of light. Spurgeon said it like this, Oh, my brothers and sisters in Christ, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay, and not madly to destroy themselves. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. We are to plead. We are to urge. We are to cry and to weep. And I am pleading with you here and now, if you don't know Jesus Christ, turn to Christ. The Father's arms are open wide. He beckons you. Come, believe on His Son, Jesus Christ. What more must God do to demonstrate His love and His, His desire that many would be saved, that they would come to the knowledge and the truth of Jesus Christ and be saved from wrath and from hell even. But more than that, to know the love of the Father, to know the grace and the kindness and the mercy of His Son, and to dwell with Him in all for all eternity and glory. So that, that, that's where it's at, folks. Modern vernacular, that's where it's at. You know, turn, call upon the name of the Lord, bow your knee to Jesus. Bow your knee to Jesus. All right, this brings us to our, the second part, and this is much shorter, much shorter, but this is number two. This is the practices of the first Christians in the primitive church. You may have heard that term primitive church, but it, it's, I love that. It's, it's what this, the church was simply in its most, most basic and, and simplified form. What was the church of Jesus Christ in its most primitive state? It's not to say that the early church was perfect. Many people say, oh, we need to get back there. We need to be like the, the early, which one? Corinth, that church? I mean, there were messed up churches even in the beginning, right? Amen. And there are messed up churches today. And so it, it, that, we're not talking about the perfect church, but the practices of the, the primitive church, you know, just simply Jesus, the commands of Scripture, just keeping it simple. So the first thing that we see here, these who have called upon the name of the Lord, these who have been baptized into his name, what did their lives look like after that? Looks like this, verse 42, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. This, this really is like a blueprint for church right here. This is something that Calvary Chapel at large, the movement throughout the years, has tried to stick very close to. And so it says that they continued steadfastly. That means they did not waver from, they were absolutely devoted to these things. One, the apostles' doctrine. That is the teaching that the apostles received from Jesus and they delivered to the church. That is the New Testament scriptures. 
That is the apostles' doctrine. That's what the early church took very seriously. They were very devoted to the teachings of Christ, the teaching of the apostles, and so are we to this day. That's why we go through the Word of God, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, because we are serious about the teachings of Christ, the apostles' doctrine, the Word of God. And so that was something that they devoted themselves, they devoted themselves to that. Are you devoted to the Word of God? Are you devoted to the teachings of Christ and the apostles? Are you devoted to the New Testament scriptures? All of the scriptures are good. All of the scriptures are inspired. All of the scriptures are profitable. But the apostles' doctrine, the New Testament, that's the covenant that we are in. We are in the new covenant of Jesus Christ. And they were committed to that. They were devoted to that. They were given to the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. They were also given to fellowship. You know, they were serious about community. They were serious about community. They were partners, if you will. They partnered together. They had something in common. There was a commonality in the church. Jesus Christ, that was what they had in common. It says the breaking of bread. This would be the Lord's Supper or, or love feasts. See, the early church would often get together and they would break bread together and then they would celebrate the Lord's Supper in that context. And so they were called love feasts. And so that was something that the early church took very seriously, the breaking of bread. And then prayer. The early Christians had a very strong dependence upon God in prayer, and we see that throughout the book of Acts. You know, this was revolutionary. God was their father. The veil, the curtain, had been torn. They had access to the throne of God through Jesus Christ, and they could now pray to their heavenly father in Christ. And so prayer was such a significant part of the church, and it remains such today. So the teaching of the Word of God, the fellowship of the saints, the communion, the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, prayer, these are, these are basic tenets of the church, of the Christian life. This is the ordinary means of grace that God has given us to exercise, to connect to Him and with each other. And this is what the early church was about. And then next, we'll see that they were about the participation in the lives and needs of one another. They were very involved in each other's lives. The participation in the lives and needs of one another. Verse 43. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. So this was a very unique time in church history when the signs and the wonders that were happening through the apostles and fear came upon all the people. This was truly God validating the New Testament. You know, it's fascinating if you look at Scripture. The, we're, we tend to think that miracles were just from cover to cover, but it really wasn't. There's three major points in biblical history where we start to see miracles happening in a rampant way. One was with Moses and Joshua. And that would correspond with the Old Testament law. Then we see Elijah and Elisha. That would correspond to the prophets. And then we see these kinds of miracles happening with Jesus and the apostles. And that would correspond to the New Testament writings. And that's what was happening here. These men were speaking forth the word of God and the power of God. And that was essentially like God saying amen to what they were saying when they had the ability to heal the sick and to raise the dead even. And so that was what was happening in this time. And it says that all who believed were together. 
Man, this, the togetherness of the Christians, it's a glorious thing. It's a beautiful thing. You know, to be on the outside, that's a terrible thing. And I know Christians who boast in that. I don't need the church. I don't need the church to be saved. That's a very frightening thing to hear someone say. Because it's true, you don't need the church to be saved. But if you don't want to be with the church, that, that to me is a more frightening indication of maybe where one's heart really is at. You know, Because the Christians need each other. The, God has given us each other as a gift in Christ. And the early church knew all about this. See, they oftentimes would be ostracized from their communities. Remember in, in the Gospels, in the Gospel, there, was, there came a point when it said that if anyone claimed to believe in Jesus, they would be kicked out of the synagogue. They would be excommunicated from their, their community. They would be abandoned and alone and ostracized. So when the Christians identify with Christ, all they had was each other at that point. You understand? So there was something very, very real, very special about the togetherness of the Christians there. And I would also say they were not an individualistic society like we are. They really understood community. It truly was about the kingdom of God and the body of Christ. It wasn't every man's an island to each his own, you know. And that, that's a great lesson for us. We need each other. The Bible says in Proverbs that the one who isolates himself he seeks, uh, he seeks his own. He rages against all, all wise counsel. It's, it's a bad indicator when we isolate. And also we know that great and wise saying that the banana that leaves the bunch gets peeled. <laughs> and so we need each other and we need to be together. And it says here that they had all things in common. That is to say, they sold their possessions to take care of each other's needs. Now, this was not some kind of early form of, of communism, okay? Christian socialism, that, that's not the idea. But people really did not cling to their own stuff. They, they held it lightly. Instead of trying to amass possessions and earthly treasures that they saw a brother or a sister destitute in need, they were more than willing to sell something to help meet that need, to care for the need of someone else. That's powerful. You know, basically, they had each other's back. The Christians had each other's back. The church takes care of its own. And I just know from my experience throughout the years, the church has had my back like no other. And to this very day, I can count on my brothers and sisters in Christ to be there for me when nobody else is there for me. You know, my brothers and sisters, that is my family. You guys are my family. You know, Jesus was preaching a message to the crowds, and we know his mom and his brothers and sisters didn't even, they thought he was crazy at one point. Did you know that? They thought he was crazy, so they were going to come, and they were going to try to get him and take him back home. So he's preaching, and some of his disciples come to him and say, hey, your mother and your brothers are here. Well, Jesus knows what's going on, and he says, he turns to the crowd and says, who, who is my mother and who are my brothers? It is those who do the will of God. Those who know the will of God do it. See, that's what it is. We are family, folks, in Christ. We are brothers and sisters. Amen? We need each other. The togetherness of the saints, having each other's back, encouraging and strengthening and holding each other accountable. You know, that's what it's all about. And the person who says, I don't need the church, that to me, that's a sad, sad state of affairs. Well, it says that they continue daily in the temple. You know, they, they gathered corporately for worship, even in the beginning. They would meet at the temple and they would worship, but then they also gathered from house to house, breaking bread. 
And so this was a smaller intimate gathering. So the church gathered corporately, and the church gathered in small groups from house to house breaking bread. And that's a great model to follow still. It's important to gather together on the first day of the week and to worship the Lord. But it's also important that we get in smaller groups and really get to know one another and pray and serve one another. Amen? And so that was something that we saw all the way in the beginning, and that continues. And I'm glad, you know, as things are looking better and better with the stats of COVID and all that this coming year, we're really moving in in the right direction. We're going to be able to get back to having those kinds of gatherings again. And I I just want to encourage as we go that direction that people take seriously gathering with the saints, gathering in community, and enjoying that intimate setting. It's a gift from the Lord. And it says that they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. You know, it was just a peace, just a contentment. You know, the simple things in life. They had been saved. They knew God as their Father. They had brothers and sisters in Christ. And life just became so very simple. You know, the hustle and bustle of life, chasing the wind, always trying to attain, but never quite getting it, grasping at the wind, that is the way that we live so often. But there was just a simplicity there, just being content in the Lord, satisfied in God, satisfied in fellowship, the simplicity of life and the gladness of heart. And then lastly here, the Godward praise. Godward praise of the early Christian, verse 47 So praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And so these were people who are marked with praise. They praised God. And that's ultimately what we are, folks. We're worshipers. If you know Christ as your Lord and God as your Father, then that's your identity. And you're a worshiper. You're a worshiper of the living God. There's all kinds of ways in which we try to find who we are and we try to identify, find our identity uh, and associate with various things in this world. But at the core, God's looking for those who are going to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And that's who we are. That's the simplicity of it, folks. That's what the early church was and that's what we are. And God blessed His church. They, They praised Him. They had favor with the people in and outside of the church. They had a great testimony in the community. And God blessed the church and added to it daily. And you know, God's blessing this church. It's awesome to see. So cool to see as people are, are responding to the gospel and they are turning to Christ and they are growing in Him and coming forward and wanting to identify publicly with Jesus and to be baptized. And this is the kind of stuff that we love to see as a church, is it not? And so God's moving, and we praise Him for that. And God is glorifying Himself through the Son. And Christ is being exalted and glorified as people come forward and identify with Him in believers' baptism. And so even this, folks, this is worship. This is worship. We are worshiping Jesus. We're saying, Jesus, this world has nothing for me. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. I'm dying to the old man, the old woman. I'm being lowered into the grave, and I am rising again, and I'm following you, Jesus. Amen? Amen. 